Welcome to my podcast, Living with Ovarian Cancer. My name is Diane Evans-Wood and I'm one of many women who are living with ovarian cancer. I want to give women like me a voice to share with you what it's like to live with ovarian cancer. We will cover a whole range of aspects related to diagnosis, treatment, recurrence and well, just about everything in between. I hope you find our honest, candid but often humorous conversations not only useful but also uplifting. So without further ado, settle down and listen to my conversation today. Welcome to episode 8 and today I'm very honoured to be talking to Gemma Lodge who's kindly agreed to talk to me about what it's like for her to be living with ovarian cancer. So welcome Gemma. Hi Diane, good to speak to you. Oh, it's lovely to see you. I know the listeners can't see you, but I can. So, uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. I've got some more hair since I last uh, l- last had a chat to you on the phone, so that's good. Wonderful. Oh. Well, tell me a little bit about you, Gemma. Tell me what makes you, you. Oh, well, um, I am uh, 42. I live in Farnham in Surrey. Um, with my 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 fiance and uh, his daughter and uh, two cats, um, I'm a solicitor by trade, uh, working in the City of London for a very large law firm. Although I'm taking a, a break, very extended break from that at the moment. Um, I hope to go back at some point, but who knows what the future holds. I've the the things that I enjoy doing in life sort of differ because of. The whole cancer thing and also the whole COVID thing, not being able to get out and about. Um, at the moment, I'm just sort of experimenting, doing some crafty type stuff. I did, a, when I was first diagnosed, I did a, a short pottery class and I found air drying clay. So <laughs> I'm experimenting with that at the moment and uh, needle, needle felting, um, which, uh, which involves, so you, you get these little bits of wool and you just look at them and think, goodness me how am I going to turn that into something with just a pin and lo and behold uh yeah these sort of little 3d objects uh come out of the uh come out of the woodwork I've started a, a little line of um my, my fiance is a pilot uh so I've been doing some little aeroplanes and things like that so <laughs> keeping myself busy at home you've found your creative side well, it's funny you say that, Diane. My my friend, uh, my very best friend Kate, um, who will love being name checked in a podcast. Um, she she is extremely creative and has a creative business. And uh, we ha- I have a funny story in that once she I was staying with her for a few days, and she had a friend round, and she introduced me to her friend as. Yeah. Oh, hi. This is my friend, my very good friend Gemma, she, the non-creative. I wind it up wind her up at every given opportunity that she introduces me as Gemma the non-creative well that's definitely not the case now I know it's (laughs) so effective though isn't it the needle felting I've seen um, I've seen people where they've done hairs um there's they're just incredibly lifelike as well some of the ones that I've seen it's it's amazing 
it, it wouldn't be the same, wouldn't be like that for me. <laughs> I might have very much done lifelike. I enjoy it though. So uh, yeah, yeah, not really fussed about that. Brilliant. <laughs> it's more about the process than the, than the results. Yeah, yeah. So long as it brings you joy. And, yes, and, right. yes it, it's very inspirational, isn't it? When you find your creativity. Yeah. So there's just you and your husband at home, is that right? Yeah, well, fiance, we're not, we're not, uh, not married, not married yet. He, um, he proposed a few weeks ago, so that's still all very exciting. Oh. But we we're unable to plan anything at the moment for yeah. various reasons. So, um, oh, many congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank so you. How did he pop the question then? Oh, it was very boring. It, obviously, we can't really do very much at the moment during lockdown, so we were just at home. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think so it was something. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. It was a complete shock. I, I thought our marrying days were over. Oh, no, no. Well, you've got all that planning to come, so something to really look forward to. Yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. I'm really grateful to you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. So can you just go back to the beginning, really, of what was it that made you you think there was something wrong? What kind of symptoms did you have that prompted you to go to your doctor? Well, I had uh, my, my symptoms sort of started off quite unrelated or you would think unrelated to, to, to cancer. I had I had a terrible cough, Diane, and mm. it went on for, for quite a number of months. And I, I went to the doctors a few times and they said, oh, it may be late set asthma. Maybe you've got an allergy. You know, here, here are the here are the pumps for Ventolin, et cetera, that they they gave me. And it, it didn't really work and no investigations were really forthcoming from it. And then I was due to go back to the doctors again um, on, a, on a Monday morning, but on the Friday night prior, I had a, all of a sudden I had a terrible shoulder ache, really desperately painful. It felt like I was being stabbed. And I, I ran, rang, um, I didn't ring an ambulance. I rang a 111, is it? Yeah. Um, to get to get some help and um, they called an ambulance because they thought I, I might be having a heart attack mm. um, which fortunately I wasn't but they took me to hospital and it turned out that I had a pulmonary embolism oh. in my left lung so I've I recovered recovered from that that explained the cough I had a chest CT scan um, and they put the pulmonary embolism down to contraceptive pill use. Then over the course of the next seven or eight months, I sort of started to get, looking back now, very subtle symptoms. Um, but it really only, I mean, I think lots of it was hidden by stopping the contraceptive pill and sort of strange things happening with periods, etc. Um, after that and I had some acid reflux but this all sort of happened immediately prior to my diagnosis which otherwise came as a shock mm -hmm. um, I had had quite a lot of tiredness 
I'd been definitely been more exhausted, but I'd put that down to I was in the early stages of a divorce at that time, um, as was my my current my current partner. Um, nothing to do with each other. It's just coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd recently moved house. Work was very stressful. So I put the tiredness down to just life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and recovering from my PEs, but my pulmonary embolisms. But um, it, it really all kicked off in um, in September 2018. I was on a much needed holiday, first first trip off to uh, Austin in Texas, really looking forward to it. And on the flight out, I thought, this is a bit strange. I haven't got any appetite at all. And bit curious for me because I, I like my food and uh, we got there I felt got arrived in Austin felt fine bit bit warm because the weather was quite hot but um yeah okay and I woke up in the middle of the night and I had the most terrible abdominal pains cramps I thought maybe it was um, indigestion gas from the flight put it off until the morning my partner went off to go and get some gas medicine from the from the pharmacy which I, I didn't end up taking because I then discovered that I was um I was bleeding mm. um, and uh, I, I tried to have a shower I couldn't stand up in the shower and he insisted on taking me to the emergency room mm. um, so this is the first day of our holiday it's going so well so far <laughs> Oh, so scary though it's pretty terrifying um particularly I think I mean yeah okay we were in the states and they have very good health care but the immediate thought is oh gosh whatever happens here is going to be potentially very expensive luckily I had all of my travel insurance documents in a plastic wallet with my passport locked in the safe and the first thing that I said to my partner was can you get that out of the safe because we're going to need it um but worst case scenario I was thinking oh crikey I've got appendicitis Mm because it was low down on one side primarily so we turned up to the the hospital they gave me a scan and some blood tests and within an hour of arriving this uh, very young doctor came in and said I'm very sorry to tell you that we are almost certain that you have uh, you have cancer. Oh my goodness! Uh, and then his next words were, "And it's very bad." And the the pain I'd been experiencing was my ovaries had torn; they were in torsion, so the, yeah. the weight of the tumours had sort of carried them over themselves. So they that twisted, was so much twisted round pain. Yeah, they twisted round, and it was yeah very painful. And then I spent, they were incredibly worried that it had already advanced to my lungs. I had lots of fluid on my lungs. So the first thing they did after that was take me in to have that drained and, 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 and analysed. And that was, yeah, that was one of the most terrifying moments of my life because I, I just had it in my head. I thought, if this is already, if this is in my lungs, I don't think I'm going to make it home to the to the UK I don't think I'm going to see home again and um, that was pretty terrifying fortunately that my lungs were drained and they analysed the fluid and they couldn't find anything and I was just 
so relieved I can't tell you and then they wanted to operate immediately but I knew that if I did that I would be um, in Austin Texas on my own (laughs) for my recovery because my partner would have to fly home uh, for work his daughter you know his life he couldn't stay with me there Mm. so I just wanted to get home so the next few days were just spent in a spent being pumped full of all the the good painkillers that they have in the in the states um just purely so that I could I could get home yeah so yeah I flew flew home uh, many thanks to uh to the, to to my husband's employer who's who got us home very safely and as comfortably as they they possibly could very discreetly they they were amazing in making arrangements to 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 get me back um so I, I was very grateful very grateful to be home I, uh, very grateful to be back on home soil oh you must um, have been so relieved oh gosh I can't, yeah. I can't tell you Duran that's sure um, oh. yeah and it, I don't think it had really sunk in at that that point it was just sort of you're on in disaster mode and the very first thing that I did and this is typical lawyer lawyer brain me the very first thing that I did was email one of the partners at work that I work very closely for and say I'm not going to be back in the office next week you're going to need to arrange to get somebody to cover my files for me for a bit because I don't know when I'm when I'm going to be back so if 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 anything at least at least I was organized yeah (laughs) Yeah. So you got back into the UK and of course your GP would be oblivious to anything that was happening. So I guess yeah. you have to go to your GP first and tell them what had happened. Well, via my employer, again, I'm very lucky to be to have had a professional career and I'm fortunate to have private health cover. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was ring my insurer um, to say this has happened you know who is on who is on your list of specialists for 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 gynecological cancers Mm. because I knew that my first phone call after speaking to them was going to be to my GP to say this has happened obviously there's no point me going for a GP consultation at this stage and I'd got a copy of my records from the the states that I could send to my GP and send to um send to send to my specialists here Uh, but there's no point having a GP appointment what I needed was a referral letter basically onto the onto the specialist which is what I had and within a matter of days I was lucky enough to have my first gynae um, appointment within a week of being diagnosed. But, but I think there, there was also an, of an, an awareness of that it was this. I, I was in a serious position yeah. and in, still in a lot of pain. So something needed to be done quickly. Yeah. Um, so I would have hoped that if I'd been dealt with, if I'd presented a, a, as a case in the in, in A&E it, to, the, to the NHS, I think that I would have been in that same position equally as, as quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And that time, it being pre, 
yeah it, it was pre-covid obviously at this time as well so so within within two weeks I was having my first surgical um, appointment they presumed it was stage 4b because there was there, there'd been evidence of lymph nodes being swollen on scans and things like that out, outside my outside my abdomen so um we'd had chats about prognosis and likely outcomes at, at that stage prior to to surgery and then um on the 8th of october so just i think it was about 3 weeks after i'd had my shock trip to the emergency room in the States, I was having my hysterectomy um, in, in Guildford. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I had a, a radical a mod- radical hysterectomy that was modified slightly to also remove my appendix because they thought that was an area of concern. It turned out that it wasn't, but mm-hmm. yeah, other than that, I had everything removed. And um, yeah, came back confirmed as stage um, stage four B grade three, so high grade. There, but it was uh, the cancer. They think it's ovarian, ovarian, but it's there could be potential for for endometrium involvement mm-hmm. as well. They're not quite sure which is the primary, but it was always erring more on the side of ovarian. But there was quite a lot of there was so much spread in my in my organs. It was quite difficult to tell what started where, I think. I think either way, whether it was endometrial or whether it was ovarian, the fact that it was a high grade serous means that that's what they would be looking at. Yeah, pathological point of view, it's the high grade serous that they're looking at, and yeah, what will treat that? Yeah, yeah, quite. So, I was I was very lucky actually to have my surgery first. The original plan was to have three rounds of chemo, and then have this have the um, operation before, because of the embolisms that I'd had. They wanted some time for those to settle down first because when when I was diagnosed with cancer they realized I had bilateral PEs Mm. then as well and it was only at that point that I realized that uh, although I became aware of the fact that it can actually be a warning sign of 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 cancer because of specific cancers because it thickens your blood yeah it can thicken your blood so if only I'd known that sort of nine months nine months before uh, nine months to a year before and when I'd gone in for that CT scan and they did my chest and they if I if only they'd gone a bit further but there we are we are we are we are no, we they are. looked at it being an isolated pulmonary embolism yeah. didn't they yes um, yeah that could have been attributed to the contraceptive pill perhaps or whatever yeah. and then once that was treated then they were hoping then that that would be it, that you were okay. But what was yeah. there, an underlying malignancy that yeah. was in your blood very sticky? Yeah. You couldn't have possibly have known that, though. No, no, no. And I, I don't really, I don't like to apportion blame for things that happen to... Uh, I'm a professional myself, and I'm, I'm aware that every day people make judgment calls um, based on risk, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, of what I do as a professional and I don't blame 
um, my GP's surgery, etc. I don't apportion any blame to them for for what happened. It is just one of those things, and it's um, although I do, there is always the what if in in my head, but I don't apportion any blame if that makes. Yes, I understand that. I can completely understand what you're saying. I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because in the absence of any specific abdominal symptoms, when you presented with your pulmonary embolism, unless you'd got specific abdominal issues that made them think, hang on, let's just look at this. Mm. They probably wouldn't have even thought to to even look look further than that yeah quite at that time you didn't have those um it came afterwards didn't it you know it did it did did. yeah but yeah in terms of my treatment I ended up the the plan was to have three rounds of chemo and then look at surgery and then finish the chemo in the end I ended up having a filter inserted into uh, my vena cava to catch any potential clots so that they could then progress and do the surgery first and then six rounds of chemo after that. So I had six rounds of you know, the, the standard treatment that, that most of us have, which is carbo and taxol. Yeah. After a couple of rounds, I also had a Vastin thrown in uh, for good measure because that was available it's it's more readily available now I'm very happy to say but Mm. at the time I had it it was only available to me because of my my private insurer was willing to pay for it um, on top of what I was already having Um, it's it's, um, a line of treatment now that is available for high grade yeah Um, yeah so that's in the guidance for high grade but unfortunately it's not there for low grade no it's it's done some you know we've seen some really good results in low grade but it's only really in the guidance for high grade at the moment but I'm so glad that you managed to have that yes yes I was I was lucky and very grateful to have it so I I had that treatment Emma can I ask you just just whiz back a little bit your surgery again yeah sure how how was that for you when you were recovering because that's pretty major surgery for you so what was that like for you it was pretty scary I can tell you that I'd never had any sort of operation before so and the situation that I was in um I was sort of wondering you know am I I actually going to wake up (laughs) from this I made sure I've written written my will and things like that before I am before I went under the knife because I was terrified that they what they might find and I'd been warned that you know they might not be able to remove all of it I didn't know what I was going to come out with by what they was there were um, adhesions on my bowels and they weren't sure what I was going to whether you know whether they might have to remove that or or indeed whether they'd be able to do anything at all they might just have to sort of close it up and say well we'll we'll give you some palliative chemo and see where we get to when Um, you sign the consent forms there's such uncertainty isn't there about there's so many sort of what ifs and scenarios that you sign to say that what what will be will be Um, really hard isn't it when you sign that on that dotted line it's it's very scary and 
as even something that also I found pretty difficult, even though I was at the time just barely 40, I am, I am childless and I still had a vain hope before I knew that this was an issue that a child might still be in my future. Although I, I knew that it was something that was un, was unlikely to happen or was increasingly unlikely to happen because of my age. You had the um, choice at the time though, didn't you? It was yeah. a choice. And yeah, I just felt there was a lot of grief around that yeah. as well, really, I think. And the fact that you've, they're sort of taking away everything yeah. that makes you, that, 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 that made me a woman, yeah. everything that produces my, you know, my hormones. And it's a lot more than just, yeah, just the surgery. There's so much, so much around it for me anyway. I think for you and many ladies, including myself, it wasn't just the physical surgery. It, yeah. was, it was the psychological and emotional impact and almost the spiritual impact on the loss of everything that makes you a woman. Yes. Your, yeah. It's your sacred space, your womb space. It's, you know, what it's what makes us feel like we are women and it does have a, a huge effect on us. It is underrated. Yeah. How did you come to terms with that then? Did you have any help or how, how did you come to um, terms with the fact that that was happening to you? Just time, I think. I did have, I did have some counselling quite early on in my, in my treatment. But if I'm, if I'm honest, most of my counselling was based around things that I hadn't appreciated would be impacted um, by cancer. For, mm. for example, I am, um, I've been estranged from my mother for a number of years. And mm. there's a, there was a sort of thing about, well, one of my major concerns was, do I tell her about what's going on? Do I engage with her at all? How helpful is all of that going to be? Mm. And most of my counselling was actually around that rather than, mm. rather than me and the stuff that was going on in my body. It was about external things, I suppose. But uh, the counselling did touch on um, how, it, how it felt about, um, you know, having that ensuring that there was making sure that I had space to grieve really for yeah. the things that had been lost and just sort of appreciating that it it had happened and coming to accept it over time I mean I guess for me it was easier than a hell of a lot easier than than a, a younger woman who had more of a, a chance of of having children I, I knew it was a an outside chance for me anyway but the hope was still there but to have it snatched away was yeah was 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 painful but at least I knew that it wasn't something that I had my heart set on if you like because I knew it was unlikely to happen for me yeah. it's a loss of all your hopes and dreams that possible hopes and dreams isn't it yeah yeah actually going through that coming round from surgery and realizing that that has all been taken away you're getting through the 
physical pain as well from major surgery. It's quite traumatic, I feel, for, for women to get through. Yeah, and, and then, of course, you're hit with the surgical menopause, <laughs> which is, you know, great. And um, it, it was funny, I think all the things rushing around in pre preparing for my operation, etc., it hadn't occurred to me to consider that. And I hadn't given that any forethought. Mm -hmm. uh, I hadn't prepared for the fact that I was all of a sudden going to wake up with no hormones and what that was going to feel like and no, you and me both um, me as an even as a nurse it never it never hit me the impact because you see women going through with the menopause and it's different when it's natural menopause but when you're thrown into full-blown surgical menopause that's really something else and and actually I didn't think about the full impact either it's quite incredible, isn't it? It, it, it is, because it's obvious when you looking back, you think, oh, goodness me, why hadn't didn't I anticipate? <laughs> didn't anticipate that as being being any sort of issue. But yeah, I think I think I was relatively lucky in my symptoms, etc. In that in that respect. But mm -hmm. yeah, it did it did come as a come as a bit of a shock on top of everything else. Good thing, goodness grief goodness me you know somebody somebody cut me a break <laughs> I know I know you, you end up having to get through so much with the yeah. surgical menopause then I guess they didn't offer you any kind of a low uh, a low dose of HRT at all no 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 absolutely nothing there's nothing that they can nothing that they could offer by way of assistance so it's just a case of oh great another thing head down get on with it here we are yeah, yeah. I know it's not easy because we're talking about that of course the listeners can't see this but here oh. I am wiping like beads of sweat because oh. I'm still going through that oh honestly oh, block as I'm on it's a melt so yeah have you got any tips for that when you start to melt <laughs> oh I don't think I have really, no. Diane. I've, I've got, I have carry a fan with me everywhere. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm as badly affected by at least the uh, the, the sweats and things as, as you are. So I'm quite lucky. <laughs> that. But, but with summer, I definitely, definitely feel it a lot yeah, more. Yeah. Sometimes I, I wake up in the night and things like that. But I, I don't think I suffer as badly as, as a lot of mm. women do. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's definitely something to bear in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you recovered reasonably okay. You dug deep and got through the, the yeah. um, surgery. Okay. And then obviously you had to have the filter put in to catch any clots. Yeah. That was yeah. a good procedure to have done. Yeah. Did they put a port a, a cath in or did they put a pick line in for chemo? Or are you oh. having cannulas put in each time you go? I was having cannulas put in until my second round of chemo. And um, I think it was evident by that stage that my veins were going to be causing everybody quite a bit of trouble. And I was, um, I think by this stage, they already knew that I would be going on to maintenance of Astin afterwards. So I was, uh, I, I had a portacath put in. Uh, which I still have now, and it gets still gets regular, regularly regular use, and it is 
amazing. I would recommend it to anybody who has it as an option. It sounds like quite a daunting thing to have in because it sort of attaches into your vein and you have this little sort of thing living in your chest, but you can't see it. You don't notice it. You can swim, have a bath, carry on completely as normal. Mm-hmm. And when I go in to have my my treatment, um, and for most most blood draws and scans, sometimes I still have to have a cannula, um, mm-hmm. but because my veins have had time to recover, they aren't as bad as they would be if they were being regularly attacked but the the port is incredible just one needle in and I don't feel it it's much more I feel much secure much more secure when I'm having treatment as well because I don't feel like I'm tangled up in a load of stuff Mm. Um, there's just this one thing and I don't have to worry about oh if I pull my arm this way I'm going to yank it out or Mm. it's going to become unstable or it's I love my port cath I think in in the future maybe um, humans will evolve to the point where we all have one (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, I can't praise it highly enough it's been amazing what was the procedure to have it inserted um do I, I'm trying to think, do I, I went in to have it done. I think I was, I think I was under a mild sedation to have it done because I think they may have been doing my filter at the same time. It all sort of happened in a, no, 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 no. I might have been having my filter out at the same time. Uh, because it was after my operation uh so there, were, there was definitely some fiddling around but i just this it felt i, I felt a bit bruised um mm-hmm. but other than that absolutely absolutely fine i didn't find it a traumatic experience at all mm-hmm. didn't have any pain post-operative yeah i just felt a little bit bruised and as it was happened the day after i'd had it put in um, I was having chemo the very next day. So they put a uh, a needle in it when they were putting it in uh, and covered it over because they knew it was going to be used within 24, within 24 hours so that they wouldn't then have to aggravate the bruising by the, the, the first access. Yeah, um, yeah and they, they just had to confirm that it was in the right place with a, um, an X-ray or something, I think. Yeah some sort of scan just confirmed the needle had accessed properly the first time and Mm. yeah it's been absolutely amazing I love my port I've heard other ladies that have been on the podcast have said that about a portacath and said that it is so much easier you know than a pick line because with a pick line obviously you've got that little dangly bit of tubing that comes out of your arm the inner side of your arm and of course you can't get that wet no it's so hard isn't it to shower with something like that so the portacath I think is the way to go yeah and if that's offered I think that's definitely the one thing I would say that after speaking to many ladies that's one the one thing that they say portacath have a portacath yeah Yeah. if it's given to you as an if it's presented to you as an option absolutely go ahead yeah yeah so you had that and you had um, six sessions of carboplatin and t- paclitaxel. Is that yeah. right? yeah. Yes. 
Was um, that weekly or, or was that um, weekly or three weekly? Every every three weeks, every yeah. three weeks. Uh, I was quite lucky with symptoms, as I recall. Obviously tired, bit of constipation, mm. not much nausea, a little bit, but was managed, easily managed by um, medication. Mm. Um, yeah, um, dealt with it quite well. I did lose my hair everywhere I had discussed with my oncologist the prospect of using the cold cap but she when I asked her about it she sort of looked at the floor and pulled a face um, so I took that as a, an indication from her as to the likelihood of success being relatively low and I'd seen some other ladies who had used it and they they had there are a couple that yeah, okay, had quite good results on the three-weekly taxo, uh, taxo carbo with the cold cap in terms of keeping the hair, but quite a number of others had sort of patchy, patchy results. And I thought rather than be in that position, I personally would rather just have, have nothing. Yeah. yeah, so I was I lost my hair and that was hard to begin with, but... Yeah, I got used to it over over time. Follicles start to hurt, or some yeah. some ladies describe um, it's like a prickly heat almost, or bruise yeah. feeling on the scalp because the follicles hurt. Did you yeah. get that? Yeah, it's like when your your hair. I think it's because you, your hair doesn't have anything as it falls out. It doesn't have anything to support itself, so it pulls. It's sort of like a pulling sensation. Mm. And um, the lady that shaved my head and and uh, sort of helped me sort out a wig, although I didn't wear the wig for very long because it was far too hot and itchy for me. Mm. She she said to me, "You'll know when the right time to have your head shaved is," and I absolutely did. Yeah. <laughs> I woke up one day and I thought, "I'm not doing this anymore. This is." far too uncomfortable and uh yeah she 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 took my hair off that that same day once it um, starts to fall out that's it really isn't it it really yeah. starts to all come away you run your hair yeah your, your fingers yeah. on your hair and it comes out in clumps then yeah and it's it's horrible uh, it's not not a nice process to go through yeah but you felt you didn't really use the wig because it was too hot, which again is another common thing for people to say is that wigs, um, wigs they are, yeah, they vary, they vary in quality, but they are like wearing a hat, aren't they? Yes. Just very warm. Yeah, that very warm indeed. I only ever really wore it when I was around um, people that didn't know that I was ill um, fortunately for me as well majority of my chemo was over the winter so if I popped to the shops I'd have a I'd just throw a bobble hat on yeah. but in terms of my my partner's daughter um, she would have been four at the time and I hadn't known her for very long um, in fact the first time that I met her was just before I started chemo uh, and then, of course, shortly after that, I lost lost my hair and um, I, I wore a wig for quite a long time when I was around, around her because I didn't want her to be, I was worried she would be scared. 
I can understand that because it's when you're meeting um, your stepchild for the first time um, and building that relationship, you want everything to remain set the same because there's, there's enough really to sort of contend with, isn't there, building a relationship without something like your physical appearance detracting from that. Yes, quite, quite. Yeah, so I did that and I was uh, lucky enough to come out at the end of it, no evidence of disease. That is brilliant. After, after the six months of treatment, so that was great. Yeah. That, that felt good. I'd been warned about the, the prospect, likely prospect of recurrence, so... Mm. That was still something very much in my in my brain, but at least for that time, I felt in a position to be able to make some plans for mm. the future and recover as well from the recover properly from the diagnosis, the chemo, yeah. and everything else that had happened over um, the course of that that period. And we I was don't really my- think um, about it while we're going through the diagnosis and the treatment it we're on automatic pilot aren't we and yes absolutely. it's almost like you don't you just don't have the energy to think emotionally and psychologically how it's affecting you you've just got to keep going keep getting through on automatic pilot each day as it comes and then when you finish the chemo that support network seem it feels as if it's gone all of a sudden you're not seeing the the regular health professionals that you were seeing every yeah. weeks and you're faced with this time to think about what you've been through and a lot of women do actually get diagnosed with post-traumatic stress because of that it's yeah. only then that they have time to process or start the process what they've been through yeah so it is very yeah, difficult. That's, exa- that's exactly right. And sort of yeah. trying to rationalise it. It's, it really is only, only then that lots of people, as you say, get the time to sit and think about what's what's happened and to yeah, really, really process what's gone on. Uh, yes, um, I, I didn't have the same, admittedly, I didn't have the same sort of safety net withdrawal feeling that I know lots of ladies suffer, suffer with. I, I can understand fully why because you sort of feel like you're cast adrift, you know, come back and see us in a few months for a scan. Uh, but other than that, off you go, you know, off into mm. your your new your new normal. Um, but I was having maintenance of Astin um, yes. throughout, so I was still in every three weeks to see my, my usual team. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you manage to work through your treatment or did you need to take some time off? Um, I've taken extended leave. The, the issue with my 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 job was that um, yeah I, I'm a I'm a city solicitor. You're either there or you're not. You can't sort of. It's not the sort of job where you can say, do you know what, I can't I can't do it today, or I've got I can only do a half day today. You you are either there or you're not because your team and your clients need to know that you're reliably going to be able to do your, your job um, and the type of job that I did was it was I was heavily involved in transactions on uh, commercial property 
deals so you would have ownership of the transaction and it would be your job to see through from the beginning to the end and you it's not very easy to hand over things it's not ideal to uh it's not an ideal position to be in if you've if you if you sort of not sure from one day to the next whether you're going to be there you're more of a would have been more of a hindrance than a help I think I absolutely hear what you're saying because it although you're in a team you have a client you have clients like a caseload of clients that you're seeing from beginning to end and you need that continuity don't you because it's that minor detail that you need to to know so I can understand really why you couldn't be there if you couldn't make a commitment to be there fully you couldn't really go and be there only partially no no and even through um Avastin I I had you know what everybody calls chemo brain for a while uh, getting the wrong words for wrong words for things and uh, not being able to remember my chain of thought at the end of sentences and you, you can't as a as a solicitor you can't practice (laughs) your job is your words and if you haven't got them and can't find them it's uh yeah not not a position that you can really fulfill that's something that's quite distressing isn't it in some ways and then we we probably laugh it off but when you've been somebody that's been really very hot on and and you've you've got a, such a good memory and you're able to retain information to suddenly go from that yeah. to being forgetful and can't think of the right words. I still get it now. Um, you know, although I finished chemo 18 months ago now, I still find it difficult sometimes to to find the words. I dread it sometimes in podcasts for that reason because I can start down one train of thought and then I think where was he going with that (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so frustrating and yeah the impact on my career I found incredibly difficult because I fought so hard to get there in the first place I had a very unusual route into the law I I spent some time in uh, local authority care when I was a when I was a child and didn't have the best of the best of starts compared to lots that make it into such a a highly regarded profession and I did my A-levels at school but I left home at I left home at 16 so without much support and having to sort of fund myself if you like through that process I didn't come out with the results I deserved Mm. um wasn't in the position to go to university but I just thought you know what I'm just going to get an office job and I was fortunate enough to start uh my career at the law firm that I still work for Mm. um I started as an office junior when they had such things doing the photocopying and uh, taking people's faxes round, mm. and uh, I taught myself how to type and became a legal secretary and then one day one of the solicitors I was working for said Gemma what could you have you ever thought of qualifying as a lawyer and I was, no um so I duly had to look into it and realized that I could qualify via um something that was called the legal executive route which involved studying part-time whilst working if you like like an apprenticeship so I went the very next day I went walking into the office managing partner's office uh, very brazenly and said 
I want to do this. And she said, fantastic. What can we do to help you? Um, so they sponsored me through that. I became a legal executive, which is a, a kind of lawyer, but not a, not a solicitor, if you like. Um, and then I chose to qualify as a as a solicitor in, in the end. And it, it took quite a lot of study and sacrifice and time. And I was really just sort of at the time I got my diagnosis, I was really fully starting to hit my stride in my career. Yeah. Proper. I'd uh, been promoted to a more senior role about 18 months previously and was you know, managing people uh, in, in teams on transactions and things like that and enjoying where I was. And then after having fought and worked so hard to get it, the rug has sort of been pulled out from under my, my feet. Mm. So, and having a profession like that is um it becomes very much who you are you know it's it's what you introduce yourself as you become you become your job um in a lot of ways and and uh yeah um, your identity isn't it yeah yeah it's all part of your identity um being where I am now in in I, I still am not at work at the moment although I am employed I'm, I'm not working mm. um, and it's, it's something I still hope to go back to but yeah it's, it's going to be it's going to be hard after I was no after I had my confirmation that I was in I had no evidence of disease I knew it was going to take some time to recover and it was about 10 months into that recovery I was starting to think about okay uh, might start thinking about what in what was thinking realistically about what what capacity you know what what the future holds and then it was covid covid reared its head and because i was still on avastin i was in the extremely clinical clinically vulnerable group mm-hmm. so physically going back to work wasn't an option at that point in time mm-hmm. and i had also had a CT scan that has was borderline it was questionable nobody was quite sure about whether it was showing some progression of disease or not so it was a bit more of a everything was put on hot but everything all of the things that I was just starting to think about again mm-hmm. embryonically to get my life back on track was sort of put on hold again because of covid and a, and, and a scan and um, unfortunately, a, a few when I was rescanned again a couple of months after, uh, I had a recurrence confirmed. So I was back on back on treatment again. Mm, oh. um, being diagnosed with a recurrence, I think, was harder than the initial diagnosis yeah. for me, and I gather that's the same for for lots of ladies in a, in a yeah. similar position because you sort of you, you always have this dread of the recurrence but at the same time you hope it won't come back um, and you start to plan your life accordingly and then yeah it's like a, a bomb being dropped on you on you from on high and suddenly the outcomes for re- for a recurrent disease have changed and yeah it's yeah. so difficult to, to come to terms with it isn't it 
yeah and then it's very much becomes a case of having knowing that you're going to be living with cancer now it's going to be something that is going to be uh, very much part of your your life going forwards yeah and knowing knowing that is 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 difficult Mm. it is difficult although we all you know we have we have treatment options still quite a long way into that period but knowing that it's knowing that it's they're always going to be there in the background is is really really hard yeah cancer ovarian cancer becomes more of a chronic disease doesn't it yes in many respects because we can live with this recurrent disease for many years yeah treatment options keeping us stable how do you get your support or who gives you support to get through this um i'm I'm very lucky i have um friends family uh my partner uh tremendous amounts of support there's also um some you know facebook groups um over overcome as well have been a, a good support Ladies that I've met online in a in a similar position, uh, we all support each other. Really, yeah. you know, yeah. some, somebody will post on having a really bad day today, and everybody will rally round them, or yeah. somebody gets good results, and everybody celebrates that fact, and uh, just uh, it just feels like a safe space to yeah. talk to people who have some understanding of what's going on. But where you don't have to, I, I, I don't particularly like talking exclusively to my friends and family about what's going on in my body, you know, the, the whole time. Although everyone wants to know how I am, there's there are things that you don't want to say to, to your nearest and dearest about what sort of side effects are getting to you this week or what you're struggling with or, you know, what no, strange... But- the ladies that are going through this they understand and it's a lot of what we say is unspoken because we we have a natural empathy don't we with each other and yeah. I, I like how you describe it it is a say a very safe space yes um, the online support groups it's really good yeah and there's no you know you don't have to sort of be delicate about parts of parts of the anatomy or dance around things you can just come out and blatantly say I've got this issue with this thing that I don't want to discuss with anybody else but I know you guys will all understand what I'm talking about Mm. so that that's been a that's been a good resource yeah are you connected with your family at all yes yes yeah yeah. my mum close to my sister my father yeah yeah did you did you get in touch with your mum or did you decide to leave that um it's my counsellor said something to me and she she basically said do you think she's going to be able to help and support you through this in any way and I said uh no Mm. I think the answer would be actually the opposite and Mm. she sort of said well I think you've got your 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 answer there um I do still have some guilt around it I think but you need to surround yourself with a support network not uh 
people who might sort of see it as a way to draw attention to themselves or detract in any way from helping your recovery you know it's about it's about you it's not about them it's if there's ever a time that it has to be about you it's now yes how you you know any knocks to you makes it even more difficult doesn't it to get through so you really do have to be focus on yourself and how you and, and surround yourself with people that like you say can support you yeah I suppose it's like a bit of a retreat from into a protective cocoon I guess Mm. yeah it's something self-preservation yeah yeah so you have the recurrence and what, what did they decide to do about the recurrence Gemma well I had my Avastin was stopped because that was for maintenance treatment and the plan was for six rounds of Carbo and uh, KX which initially I dealt with quite well although the side effects were more marked than with the Carbo Taxol I had um, quite a lot of mouth ulceration was um, that was quite severe and my dose had to be reduced a few times because of that. Yeah, I had I had some side effects with it. it. I had some treatment delays as well because it had quite a heavy impact on my bloods. Um, not something I'd experienced on carbotaxol, but I had a number of blood transfusions for red blood cells and my platelets were often very low and I had treatment delays because they were so low that they they couldn't do it and platelet transfusions and uh, yeah real real trouble with things like that and in in the end in at the end of August last year I ended up in hospital with sepsis and it transpired that my platelets were very 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 low at that point in time as well and I was at risk of interior a spontaneous internal bleeding so I stayed I was in for a week in hospital having um having that treated and my chemo was unfortunately stopped as a result and well it wasn't stopped at that point actually what what happened was my oncologist said you've been you've had a really hard time before we go any further, let's bring you in for a scan and see um, how think, how you're getting on. And at this point, I think I, I still had a couple of treatments left. I think I was four treatments in. They said, let's give you, give you a scan, because if it's not actually having any effect, there's no point putting you through the, the ongoing rigours of this treatment because you're, you're not coping, your body's not coping with it very well and they they brought me in for a scan and unfortunately that showed progression in my disease so I got worse while so despite um, having the treatment it progressed yeah it progressed while I was on 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 the uh, on the treatment which means that platinum treatments are now out for me because they don't they don't work I'd had substantial progression to multiple lymph nodes scattered throughout my chest and my abdomen. And the things that were causing me the most um, trouble were I'd had, I'd got bilateral tumours on my adrenal glands. They were causing me a lot of 
back pain. So I was um, referred on to the hospice for pain management, had some oromorph and things like that. And uh, I was put on a different chemo regime as well to help with the symptoms. And that helped very quickly. I was very pleased about that. So I was taken off the carbo and calyx regime and put on just Taxol as a single agent, but also alongside my old friend of Aston. Again, Taxol is weekly, given as a a single agent, and uh, Avastin is every three weekly. I was um, scheduled to have 18 treatments, and I think I've got five more left. So coming coming to the end of it now. And uh, fortunately, my midway scans showed a significant reduction in the the progression that I'd had. So I'm delighted about that. Um, just hoping for 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 a good outcome when I get to the end of end of treatment and see what happens after that. After that, really. Yeah. How did you feel when they referred you to the hospice? Um, initially, I was yeah scared Mm. but it was made very clear to me early on that this was for pain management not for and and that forms part of palliative care palliative care is treatment of symptoms not you know end of life care it was made clear to me that this is not end of life care this is palliative care to treat your symptoms and yeah that and, and to help you with your pain in a, in a way that... because of the palliative phase of somebody's disease it's very different to the end of life phase yes so the palliative phase you can live for many years with yes absolutely. Uh, i'm living in the palliative phase with the recurrence that i've got i've been living with that now for what two three years yeah and i saw it in my career too uh, women you know not just women but patients would be on my books on and off for many years many years yeah. whereas end of life care is the very end last few days maybe a couple of weeks that's end of life care yeah and hospice is about both yes and so it, it it terrifies people when they're referred to hospice care but actually they are the best. I used to be a hospice nurse, but we're the best at what we did. You know, Absolutely. We did. Um, Absolutely. Definitely a very special class of people, Diane. Very special class of people. It's amazing because you could see so much difference. Um, when somebody came to visit at a hospice, you could see they were terrified and so anxious and you could see in their face what they were feeling. But when they walked away and when they came on subsequent visits, they were very different and saw it very differently. You know, they were so much more relaxed and their quality of life, I think. um, I mean, I worked in the community, but improving somebody's quality of life when they're living with a life-limiting disease, there's just nothing like it. The, The satisfaction that you get seeing people being able to carry on living their lives is just truly amazing. And that's why I'm just so glad that you were referred to the hospice for, for symptom management, because they really are the very best at what they do. So 
I wanted to touch on that really because I'm hoping that when ladies listen to this podcast that they won't be afraid of hospice or palliative care if they're if they're, somebody says to them we'll refer you I want them to feel that it's a very positive move because it yeah. really is it's I've got nothing but positive things yeah. to say about it the, the the control they took over my pain medication the care that they showed just yeah. the, the just the human skills that they they have that they are yeah very very special people indeed it, it's not it was nothing at all what I thought it would be like no, um, I've heard that said many a time <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just so pleased I engaged with it and uh yeah if, if if you're referred if anyone's referred on please don't be frightened scared see it as an opportunity a positive one to make things better for you because it absolutely will yeah oh thank you so much for saying that I think that's going to be so helpful you know so you've got five more treatments left I have what happens after that then I don't know Mm. I don't know um I suppose a lot will depend on what's happening with my my scans and uh, yeah, I don't really know what what comes next. Whether there's maintenance maintenance treatment, or whether it'll be a case of watch and wait for a bit. Or yeah. I really don't have any idea as to what comes next right now. Um, so they want to do the five treatments and then just kind of see how you respond and let you recover, let your body recover. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and uh, as you as you can see, I've I've had success with the cold cap on weekly on weekly tax. So I've been I can there. See that? I know the listeners can't see you, but you've actually got a ponytail. You yes. change your hair, yes. and it looks it, it's brilliant. <laughs> I'm really delighted. After I had this the same oncologist when I when I was on the carbo tax, or who. She pulled the pulled the funny face when I mentioned the cold cap and gave me the impression it wasn't going to be a good idea. My my third line of treatment, the weekly taxol, it was she raised it. I I thought, oh well, it's obvious this is obviously going to be a no go, so I didn't didn't even raise it. But yeah, she mentioned it. She said, "Have you thought about trying the cold cap this time?" And I took that as a cue from her that it was more like much more likely to be successful um so I gave it a go and uh, yeah I've, I've had really good results I I have lost some on on top a little bit but uh, you wouldn't notice if you didn't no, you can't notice no um, and I'm yeah I'm delighted with the results because I'd being a year on from well being just over a year on from my my first lot of tax on and losing my hair it just got to a point where it actually looked like hair again and I thought oh no <laughs> that's just square one again mm-hmm. um so yeah that's that's one thing that I've mm-hmm. one brilliant experience that I've had with a that I can relay with the cold cap I've uh, had great success with it this time and I know some ladies aren't able to 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 tolerate it but to be honest, I find, I find it a little bit uncomfortable for the first five, ten minutes. 
after that, I've usually had my antihistamines alongside my taxol treatment. Mm. So I'm, I'm asleep. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say you just doze. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm asleep and it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Oh, I'm so pleased that you retained your hair. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's a small thing, but it's important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It actually, we say it's a small thing. I think for many women, it's it's a big thing. But I like you, you know, I didn't, I lost my hair and I didn't want a wig. I just, I thought, well, I've lost my hair. I'm just going to wear, I just wore, wore a cap or nothing at all. I often, yeah. I often, you know, we, we used to go to um, a local pub for, for some lunch. And I often used to just walk in there with, nothing you know nothing on my head and a pick line there you know so it's pretty obvious what was going on in fact there was one lovely lady that was once I went to the bar and she came up to me and she said I just want to say that you are rocking that bald head <laughs> and she gave me this hug and I loved it I just you know I thought that's a really lovely thing to say because you do get the looks you do get people looking yeah. you know but yeah but they're not looking because they're thinking, oh, gosh, that looks awful. Or or even what I didn't want with the sympathy, the sympathy looks, you know, the oh, gosh, poor woman, etc. But uh, I'd, I'd still go on like dressed up in my normal clothes with makeup on and whatever. And uh, yeah, I think I looked OK. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did. You're such an inspiration. You know, when I think about you shared that. You left home at 16 and you you really fought hard to become a lawyer and everything. You're so positive and you've taken up creative arts and you're getting through. So you're such an inspiration. I think that any women that are listening to, to your story, they're going to get a lot from it, Gemma. I really think that. It's very kind of you to say, Diane, but I think I don't think I'm any different to anybody else in in these situations. You just sort of um, you just sort of keep going, don't you? One foot in front of the yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. There's an inner strength, isn't there, that we we just didn't know that we had, and we just keep on going. So. Everyone always that knows me describes me as being stoic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they don't see behind the scenes though, of what it takes out of you to be no. here to be stoic. No, I've, I've, although I think by nature I, I largely am, but I do have the odd day where I sort of hide under the duvet and have a good sob and feel sorry, feel massively sorry for myself. But mostly, it's yeah, it's not not that way at all. Yeah. Do you ever get scared of the future of what's going to happen? Do you ever think ahead? Yeah, I absolutely do. I was I was thinking about funerals and things last night, actually. Mm. I do think about it. I, I don't tend to dwell on it. And it's something that's going to happen to everybody at, at some stage. You know, when none of us are getting out of this alive. Um, mm. Obviously, it's disappointing that it's likely it's for me that it will be sooner rather than later. But um yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that's COVID, one of the great annoyances about COVID is that it feels like the time that I've got, the last year of it has been, been spent on hold, hold up at home rather than out doing the things I 
want to be doing so that's been very frustrating but yeah I, I do I do I do think about it and um thought about where where I do want to die where I don't want to die and mm. making plans for uh, my family etc have yeah. you spoken have you spoken with your partner and your family about what your wishes would be or have you recorded them not as yet because I don't have any immediate don't feel that I have any immediate need to and obviously having those discussions is upsetting for them but when there is a time then yeah that's that's something that I will I will be doing I think thinking it through is important and maybe just recording it is important too but I think not like what you said was important not dwelling there yes go there but don't let it ruin your your current life your present life you're right because life is a gift and if you stay there in in that state of fear and anxiety and you dwell in that place it really detracts from your quality of life so you have to find the strength to get out of that pit don't you you're missing missing what what you're fighting for yeah yeah that's right I agree what's 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 the point in doing that it's it's not going to change the outcome Mm. so yeah 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 and you you have a wedding to plan (laughs) (laughs) who knows when we'll be able to do that but uh yeah we'll sort something out it's it's going to be very very small scale (laughs) oh I don't care I'm just going to really look forward to seeing the photos (laughs) (laughs) I've kept you so long Gemma thank you but we've just a few light-hearted questions then to to end our our episode today what song would be the signature tune for your life would you say oh gosh I've always liked Queen don't stop me now yeah that's perfect I I think that would be it at this point in time (laughs) yeah (laughs) love it what do you want to be remembered for Gemma oh oh gosh that's a very difficult question I I don't know just just being a good a good friend and, and, and a good person really for not for anything in particular yeah. um, no I haven't, I haven't got any big sort of I want to be remembered for changing the world or for doing this that and the other just for being a normal person really yeah yeah I think you'll be remembered for your resilience and how you've coped with everything that's thrown at you yeah with such dignity what was the last book you read or is there a book you'd recommend everybody reads if I'm completely honest I've struggled a bit with reading for the last couple of years it's something that I used to do a lot of but I've, I think throughout chemo I struggled a bit my attention span was useless and then during Covid I think lots of us have had problems with uh, short attention spans but yeah, uh, yeah I, I've been I've read the books by Atul Gawande um the checklist manifesto and and the 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 ones that he's written from a more health-based perspective as well 
And I found those very useful. Lots of them talk about how we deal with chronic diseases uh, in society and how we deal with with ageing. And uh, they've, they've been they've really opened my eyes, actually, to what, what we can do, what, what people can do better, really. And they're, they're very good reads. They're very good reads. Did he write, um, was it Being Mortal? Yes, Being Mortal, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he yeah. did indeed. Yeah. Lots of good reports about that. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like quite a dark book, but it's not at all. <laughs> that was the last but the last book that I managed to read actually. I, I bought all four of his books in a in a compendium and I read them all through while I, while I had my week in hospital. And being mortal was the last one that I read. Yeah. He's he's a great writer and yeah. a fantastic human being. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And last one. Where in the world would you say is an absolute must to visit in a lifetime? Uh, I've been to been fortunate enough to go to Japan twice and I would absolutely dearly love to go back. It's um, an amazing place on so many levels and just the, the, the nature, the physical beauty of it outside of the cities uh, the cities themselves, the, the sort of, and the, the the unique experiences that you can have, you can mm. have there, and they're they're very very friendly people, and um, much more in terms of language difficulties, mm. um, they're they're sort of embarrassed that they don't know very much English when you try and talk to them. I think they recognise that it's, speaking Japanese is very hard. Uh, so going much beyond a please and thank you and can I have is 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 as a tourist is is um, sort of above and beyond. But it's very much based around making things easy for tourists out there so there are menus are in English and uh, they have little resin models of of the different dishes that you can order in re- in restaurants and things so you can just point at things and it's not unusual because that's what the Japanese people will do as well sometimes that I, I absolutely love the place uh, the history the people the 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 environment both times I went in autumn and the trees were so magnificent the colours absolutely incredible the the gardens the culture yeah Mm. the food absolutely love it would recommend it to anybody please go (laughs) please go and explore yeah yeah (laughs) Oh. oh Gemma thank you so much for all the time you've spent in sharing your story so I'm going to let you go now, make a cup of tea. So, yeah, I'll catch up with you on now. Facebook. And yeah. um, bye for now. You take good care. Okay. Bye, bye. bye. And you. And you. Take care. And you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. To hear future episodes of this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe now. I look forward to sharing more inspiring conversations with women who are living with ovarian cancer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy all that life has to offer.